The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Well, again, it's good to see you. Uh, my name is Stacy Croft. If you missed me saying that a minute ago, I'm the pastor here at Christ Pres Music Row and um, would love to get to know you uh, and love to get to know your story if I haven't already. Well, um, I don't know about you, but um, I really love um, the, all the Christmas movies and things. Um, I don't know if you get into that. I, used, I have a best friend that lives in Chicago now, but uh, we grew up together in, in Dallas. And we would literally watch every Christmas the same uh, like selection of movies over and over. Like It's a Wonderful Life, Scrooged, uh, you know, um, Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, like all those things we would watch. I think there were like five or six that were just kind of on our list. We're like, we got to watch these every Christmas. And if we didn't, it was, just, no, even when we went to college and came back, it was like, okay, when are we going to do this? And we just binge on them. But I have to say the one that I go back to so often is the Charlie Brown Christmas. And I don't know if you've ever seen that. Some of you are like, well, I've heard of it. Maybe I haven't seen it. Please see it. I mean, you can even watch it on YouTube. I'm sure they have like downloadable, you know, options for you. But um, it's really short. Uh, it's an older cartoon, um, and it's about Charlie Brown, and uh, maybe you've heard of Charlie Brown and, and his you know, cast of uh, friends. But the thing that I love about the Charlie Brown Christmas that's so incredible is that you see him engaging on how he struggles with what Christmas is supposed to mean. And this is supposed to be a kid, right? But it, it really speaks into all of us. You see him struggling with, well, I'm, not, I'm just not happy and he wants to be happy. And so he tries to become happy in so many ways when it comes to Christmas. And one of those is he, he goes to see uh, Lucy, who sets up the psych, you know, psychiatry booth. That, that's kind of her thing. And, and she runs through like a list of issues. And he's like, I don't, I don't have any of those. Or maybe I have all of them. And you know, he's trying to miss there. And then his little sister gives a list. And all it's about is commercialism. And he's like, well, is, is Christmas about commercialism? And he just feels down. And um, there comes a point when <clears throat> he's, you know, trying to direct the play, Christmas play, and he screams out loud, does anybody know what Christmas is all about? And his best friend Linus, who always has a blanket, always, never, you never see him without it, walks, he goes, I know what Christmas is about. And he walks into the middle of the stage and begins to talk about Christmas. And he quotes from Luke, what we were just reading, from Luke when the shepherds encounter the glory of God. And there's this announcement. And for the first time ever in any of the cartoons, Linus reaches a point, he actually drops his blanket. There's no other cartoon of the peanuts where he actually puts his blanket down. He puts it down and he finishes the passage. And he's almost on his tippy toes of joy. And, and it's interesting because what's happening in that moment is Charlie Brown is starting to realize what really meets my grief? What really meets the sadness, the, the, the weird stuff, that we're, 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 what touches the parts of me that I try and reach? I need, do I need to be happy? He tried, Charlie Brown tries to direct the play, to do things to feel better about Christmas. He tries to, to talk to somebody about it and, and work through it and try and diagnose it. But, but what happens in the end is, is Linus dropping his blanket, expressing this. What meets our deepest grief 
and sorrow and, and confusion. You know, we're going to look at Advent. We looked last week. We're going to look for, um, through this Advent, some passages in Isaiah. It's actually an ancient book, and there, there are songs that were written about a specific person that encounters our grief called the suffering servant. And at first you may go, wait, why are we reading this at Christmas? But if we don't talk about what real grief is, we won't really understand what real Christmas is. That's what's so powerful about that Charlie Brown Christmas is Charlie Brown's heart isn't met until he makes room for the real grief and sorrow. And he kind of screams it at the end like, is there anybody that can solve this? He's just down the whole time. And then finally he hears this good news come in and it answers those questions. So we're gonna look at, we're gonna look at this in two ways and I want you to hear it before I read it. We're gonna listen for a man who is acquainted with grief, the suffering servant, and one who bears our grief. So one who's acquainted with grief and bears our grief. This is from Isaiah chapter 53, verses four through seven. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers, is silent. So he opened not his mouth. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You know, as I mentioned, this is a, a, an excerpt from a song. And it's a song that really unpacks wh- what is Advent really about? I know you, at first you're kind of like, this sounds like somebody grown and dealing with sufferings. But, but really this passage addresses what is Advent about? What is that breaking in about? What does that arrival mean? And why do we need it? Because it says grief. In fact, verse 3 right before this says something even more startling. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted of grief. Not just that he, this suffering servant connected to grief, but this suffering servant took on the, the mantle of grief and sorrow. It was an identification. Uh, you know, I read something uh, some time ago in the New Yorker. It was, it was an interesting article called Good Grief. And it was kind of connecting to the whole idea of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the five stages of grief. Maybe you've heard of these before. But it was kind of a, a different take on it. How do we grieve well? And it said this, though Kubler-Ross captured the range of emotions that mourners experience, new research suggests that grief and mourning don't follow a checklist. They're complicated and untidy process. 
Less like a progression of stages and more like an ongoing process. Sometimes one that never fully ends. Perhaps the most enduring psychiatric idea about grief, for instance, is the idea that people need to let go in order to move on. And yet studies have shown that some mourners hold on to a relationship with the deceased for some notable ill effects for a length of time. Many cultures around the world do this. And at the end of her life, Kubler-Ross herself recognized how far astray our understanding, our understanding of grief has gone. On grief and grieving, she insisted and wrote that the stages were never meant to help tuck messy emotions into neat packages. In her injunction, she went on to perhaps say, the messiness of grief is what makes us uncomfortable. I think what's interesting about how this passage begins is it says that this particular individual is addressing our grief not just by talking about it or working through it in phases and a checklist, but stepping into the mess of it. And here's what's interesting. Verse 4 begins this way. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. There's an element of this verse that's broken into two parts. The first part of that verse is, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, is beginning to take an observer looking in on this servant and seeing them and kind of going, What is wrong with this person? And yet it moves from there to yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten and afflicted. It is not just that they look in on it, but it's the we stating of a group standing aloof. This is actually the Hebrew language of saying someone standing aloof, far off, looking at this person and saying something they did they deserved. It must be something they deserved that brought along this grief, this pain, this affliction. Something that they did. I think, in fact, the we here is interesting. That you, you begin to see this break of this he and we. But he was pierced for our transgressions. And you even get to see this person, this suffering servant's connection to the pain. In verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. I mean, I cannot tell you. If you're in affliction and I am, I don't know about you, but I totally understand how affliction, when it hits me, makes me not keep my mouth closed. It makes me want to complain. It makes me want to wound someone else when I'm wounded. It makes me want to scream out. That is the last thing I want to do. And yet in this passage, it's saying this person didn't just shut their mouth as if now, and we know in the passages later as Jesus, he actually does open his mouth. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't wound others. He doesn't afflict others. He keeps his mouth quiet to receive all the affliction that is not his own. When grief hits you in such a way, whether it's someone else who's afflicted you or or just a death or a loss in some sense, I don't know what you do with it, but I I would want to ask, do you know where you share? Do you know where it goes? Where does it go from you? Where does grief go when you encounter it? And this passage is telling us that grief is real. Grief should be addressed. It should be, it should be engaged. And I think sometimes that we've thought about grief just like these first, this first verse of standing aloof and saying, 
maybe I'll engage for a minute. And we know this when somebody's actually here, and this is so often in our culture, you may have experienced this. I know many of us have. When something hard happens in our life, people press in for a couple weeks, maybe some days, and yet it trails off. There's not an enduring of that carrying over into affliction, that love, that care in the midst of it. Because we're, we're not used to grieving well. We don't know what to do with it. And yet in this passage, it says he carried our sorrows. There's someone who, who stood into this, someone that, that steps into the grief to experience it. So how should we grieve? Ecclesiastes even says this. This is interesting. Ecclesiastes, another book in the Old Testament that speaks of wisdom, it says, it is better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Why would it say that? Because... In the depth of our heart, what what wisdom is, is us understanding that to make more room for love, to make more room for care and life in our lives, we think we need to be happy. We think we need to move on from a grief in order to do that. But actually, what the Bible's telling us is it's through grief. It's actually by taking up grief and sorrow that you make more room for love. This passage is not saying that he moves it off or pushes grief away. See, most of the time we connect grief to depression. In fact, Charlie Brown in that that, uh, great cartoon says, I think I'm just depressed. (laughs) And so we often connect depression and sorrow, but depression is actually completely different. And many of you in this room may know that. Depression is actually a disengagement. It's that sorrow pushes you so far that you just disengage from everything and everyone, including yourself. And it's such a painful, isolating, lonely place. But sorrow and grief here is still, det- is still attaching. It's still connected. When, when it says he's borne our griefs and, and it moves on even further into this, there's a complete connection from the suffering servant to every single bit of our infliction and iniquity. There's no disconnection. And yet the scariest part is verse six as it says, after all this, all we like sheep have gone astray. All we have turned, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid, the, laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like sheep, we've gone astray, and yet all that affliction, we are the ones who've turned, and yet all that turning has been put on this suffering servant. There's a great book I love by a guy named Dan Allender and Tremper Longman, who's a a pastor and and a psychologist, who wrote a book on our emotions connected to the Psalms. One of the things they say here is that we forget that change comes through brutal honesty, brutal vulnerability before God. Only face-to-face with our deepest ruling passions is there a hope of redeeming the fabric of our inner world. 
It's us actually not disconnecting, but connecting deeply to that. And this suffering servant is doing that. Far from any other understanding of Christianity, where people think maybe it's a pie-in-the-sky religion, or maybe it's a, a thing where you just connect to God so you don't have to think about other things. Maybe you put yourself in a position where it's, it's like, oh, why? and maybe some of you may be here today. Like, I feel so dry spiritually. Or I feel so, like, I wish there was something more inside. But this is actually saying, no, 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 don't walk away from that as if it means you're not in relationship. Actually lean into it further as if you are. Because it is through that grief that you make more room for being loved and loving. That the good news rushes in. A, a, a brilliant Thinker, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, wrote a book on spiritual depression. And he talked about the difference between what that connection is with this and what we see in this passage. He said that there's what's called the over-dissection of the soul. That he suggests that we cross the line from self-examination to introspection when, in a sense, we do nothing but over-examine ourselves. When we put all the understanding on ourselves, all the grief, all the sorrow, we focus in and say, what's wrong with me? Do we know, and I want to encourage you, the definition of hell itself is trying to grapple with your sorrow and grief alone. That is actually what hell is. And you know what it feels like. We've gotten tastes of it. And some of you may be in that place even now. But here's what's fascinating about this passage. It's saying that this person is engaging, not moving away. There's no disconnection in this passage. There's nothing but engagement. Not with just the grief, but those whose grief he's taking on. Because this suffering servant isn't just acquainted with grief. He bears that grief. He's born it. This is why Christianity is distinct. If you want a, a, a caveat of why is, what, what makes Christianity different? Christianity is distinct because it means that Jesus, the Advent, what, what we celebrate, even at Christmas, what we're reading about, is that God doesn't sit up and give us quips or teaching about how to bear our grief or how to, how to deal with it. He actually comes to bear it. Notice again, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. But he was pierced. Verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray, yet he was oppressed. Verse 7, And he was afflicted. Notice again the we and he language. I think it's so, I've read this passage so many times and preached on it. And yet what jumped out to me so starkly was he, how much he, the suffering servant, takes these things on, bears these because of we. There's a bearing, there's a taking up in because we have done this, yet he is afflicted for it. And, and, and there's so much discussion. I remember one of the big questions about the suffering servant song. And I remember even being at Vanderbilt and having this discussion with many, uh, even some Jewish scholars, that there's discussion of, okay, okay, I don't know if this could be Jesus. This could be a lot of other people. There are other people who came along. 
There are other people who, who came into the picture. Why, this doesn't need to be Jesus. It could be one of the other kings that came further. And there are a lot of description of that. But if you read this, listen to the description here, even of this person. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Yet it moves into this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, that is full shalom. What human being can do that? What normal human can actually bring those? And with his wounds, we are healed. Those are descriptions that are so profound. that What, what normal human could take that up? No one could. This is why when Charlie Brown's friend Linus comes to the middle and he begins to, to proclaim from Luke the gospel itself, and he drops his blanket, and the reason he does, and you see it in the moment, his eyes get big, his smile comes on his face, he gets on his toes, and he realizes even in that moment that this news is not like any other news. All the news, Charlie Brown has gotten every bit of news that he could get to make it through the season. <laughs> and yet this news trumps all of that. You know exactly what I mean. I mean, some of us, and I've just read an article saying this, and it's not profound, but it, it, it hits home. It's very practical. It says, most of us aren't just hoping to enjoy this Christmas. We're hoping to survive it. And with words like merry and joy and cheer and on all Christmas cards, they're just loud at you. And all those things that we sing, we feel this sense of, do I need to like somehow muster up some emotion? We can't get in there and do that. We can't just manufacture that within us. We have to have someone else come in and actually reach into the places that we can't. And that's what makes Christianity so distinct. This passage expects too much from whom it's speaking from than any mere mortal. It has to be someone who bore our griefs and yet can connect us in a way to the Heavenly Father that we can't. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And yet, what this song meant for them when they heard this song is that it brought hope. It brought it. And look at verses 5. And I want to I hone in on, chap, on verse 5 of this chapter to talk about pierced, crushed, chastisement, and wounds. Because how does he do it? Okay, it, you're telling me if it's Jesus, that's great. But how does he do it? How does he show us that? It first says that he was pierced for our transgressions. This word is only found in Isaiah. The word pierced, only found here in this, in this whole book, in the whole Old Testament. And it meant for fatally wounding someone. And at first you may think he was pierced for our transgressions, that our sin pierced Jesus. I want to remind you that when Jesus was up on the cross, our sin didn't pierce Jesus. He was actually fatally wounded by his own heavenly Father for our sin. That is a very, very big difference. This is why. Because when we celebrate Christmas, it means that from the moment Jesus came into this world, his mission was to receive that piercing by his heavenly Father for our transgressions. Transgressions that we have accumulated, past, present, future, ahead of him. 
There's an incredible English poet, maybe you studied him in college or in, in even high school, named John Donne. He wrote this from his book of Uncommon Prayers. Listen to what he says about this. The whole of Christ's life was a continual passion. Others die martyrs, but Christ was born a martyr. He found Golgotha, that is the hill where he died, where he was crucified, even in Bethlehem, here where he was born. For to his tenderness, then, the straws were almost as sharp as the thorns, and the manger as uneasy at first as the cross at last. His birth and his death were but one continual act, and his Christmas day and his Good Friday are but the evening and the morning of the same day. Jesus, from the moment he comes, is at work. And the Heavenly Father is at work in him to bear our sin, to be pierced for those things. He was crushed for our iniquities. He takes the weight on, crushed. I mean, just what it says, crushed. Uh, I remember uh, in our driveway, there was a bouncy ball stuck underneath the tire. And you think of those things like peeps, you know, peeps in Easter that you eat, they're like indestructible. Ever seen those YouTubes where you like shoot a peep or you run over a peep? You can't do anything to a peep. It's kind of like that. The peeps are just indestructible. And yet with the, the amount of weight, it's, it all depends on the amount of force. The appropriate amount of force and weight upon a peep will destroy the peep, which is kind of gross if you think about it. But to the degree that what this language of crushed means, it means that there's a weight that's so profound that was so laid on him in this passage that there's no mere human that could could withstand this kind of crushing. In fact, the opposite language, the language for forgiveness is actually means a lifting off. The Hebrew word for forgive is to lift off. Take that in its opposite to crushed. Think of just your own heart. The things that, 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 that plague you, the sins, the iniquities that you go back to, iniquities, the the ways that you've done wrong against others or even yourself. And lay that, think of that being lifted off, but it is laid on another. That's a picture. This is what this person is taking on. This is what Jesus, the suffering servant who is crushed for our iniquities, is experiencing. The relationships. You know what's so powerful to me? Is when I experience that I have harmed someone and my weight has been put on someone else and then they give me forgiveness in retrospect of that. The Bible says sometimes that's like experiencing burning coals on your head. There's nothing more profound than experiencing someone holding that weight and giving you and lifting it off of you. And yet, what changes you isn't the fact that you're like, well, yeah, you hold it. It's the fact that, as God says, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that he lifted it off and laid it on another. He crushed this one. And notice this, Jesus doesn't minimize, this suffering servant here doesn't minimize the suffering. 
Verse seven, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. It says it twice and it does because it says he does not minimize a moment of coming into this world for that. He doesn't minimize a moment of your suffering. Do you know, I've talked to many of you in this room about it and you maybe have experienced this over Thanksgiving and maybe will again at Christmas. But when you encounter some deep parts of your anxiety or pain and someone minimizes it, or says, oh, it's going to be fine. It doesn't do anything to it. It, it, it. it can sometimes even increase the volume of your anxiety or of your pain or your grief. The most powerful moments are when someone actually meets you in it, is with you in it. What Jesus is doing here when he says, he yet, not, yet he opened not his mouth, He said he receives the weight of that, the oppression, the affliction, and yet he stays with. He doesn't move to what we know as depression. He stays in grief and sorrow to its fullest end so that he is never disconnected from you and me. So that no matter what grief you're in in this very moment, there is not a moment where Jesus has disconnected his grief from where you are be it an emotional loss, be it a physical loss, economic loss, whatever that is, that loss, that lack that you're experiencing, he does not disconnect. The chastisement that brought us peace, the chastisement of him, the the ridicule, the affliction physically and emotionally, he opened not his mouth because of the injustice. He didn't wound back. He made us whole. Here's what that language means. Peace is the word for shalom. That means to make complete or whole. Think of the opposite of that, his chastisement. What does chastisement do? It just renders you. It doesn't just take away tranquility. It feels like it's tearing you apart. The literal action of this is what it's doing, is that the chastisement of Jesus, the tearing apart of Jesus, actually brings you peace. Even in the ways you don't feel peace, he's active in those ways. Here's why I know this. This table in front of us is that very thing. Because the last verse on here says, it is by, upon him, and with his wounds we are healed. All of this leads to this table. The the Advent candles point us to the reality that our grief is actually met. Sin is real, and yet hope is swallowing it up in victory. Advent is preparing us for the sake that, that our hope is real. That it's not just warm fuzzies. It's not just the sweet stuff that we put hanging up and, and we get presents and we get everything together and like Charlie Brown at some points we're like can somebody remind me what Christmas is all about this is what Christmas is all about there was never a moment where Jesus was disconnected from you when you know that his body and blood is given he gives hope to address every pain that you have He connects to your grief in every taste of this. And you know what? At some day, as we say at this table, grief will end. Grief will not be anymore. 
as we even see here, that by his wounds we are healed, your healing is actually an active work that's happening right now. And it will happen in the fullest when he returns. God says this table is a picture of that. It's a picture, it's a taste of the fact that Advent, Christmas is a hope. And like Linus, we can drop anything else in our hands and proclaim the good news. That this is good news over your grief. And what it does is it teaches you to hold your grief. This table doesn't mean you, you drop your grief. To hold it. And yet what makes more room for love? Isn't that exactly what this table does? It is through the piercing, through the crushing, through the chastisement, through the wounds that you taste that it has made all the more room for love for you and me. Isn't that amazing? Amen? Amen. Let's stand.